looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. The 23rd day of the month of September, in an early year of a decade not too long before our own, the human race suddenly encountered a deadly threat to its very existence. And this terrifying enemy surfaced, as such enemies often do, in the seemingly most innocent and unlikely of places. going on everybody this is wrong real episode 511 the podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and today we've got the second aussie we've ever had on but the first aussie who's actually in australia at the time of the recording but we have the great gidget von larue the co-host of the retro cinema podcast and we're going to be tackling the ginormous career of the great Frank Oz. But Gidget, I guess we've known each other on Twitter for years at this point, but you're one of the, the besties of the great Moose Matson. So welcome to Wrong Real. <laughs> Thank you so much, James. This is very exciting because I'm a big fan of your podcast. Uh, I, I love just the coverage that you guys do regarding all things cinema, which is fantastic. And thank you so much because... Frank Oz now, we're coming into the third year of the retro cinema and Frank Oz has become our token, our little... Uh, our, Your spirit shaman. A spirit spirit animal, really, uh, Frank Oz. Uh, so because he's just, he's been in so much, he's directed so much, he's cameoed in so much and he's puppeteered in so much. So uh, I'm very excited and and super pumped to have a chat about the Ozman. Which indigenous Australian animal does Frank Oz most closely resemble? Uh, I think he would resemble probably a, a, a red kangaroo. Gotcha. Less, less about looks, more about attitude, because I watched a very long interview with him a couple of nights ago, and he's a very decisive man. He reminds me a bit of John Cleese, actually, in that um, – they're very, very good at comedy. They've, they know what comedy is. I mean, he's certainly a fantastic comedy director as well. And, you know, his portrayal of Fozzie and Miss Piggy and always very funny, even though a lot of that was written for them. Uh, he's got great comedy instincts, but he also seems, also seems like quite an intense man as well. Without um, a doubt. Yeah. 
So, and I think John John Cleese is a bit the same. And I think a lot of very funny people are like that. They're probably oh, they're very a little depressed. Bit... It's like that mm. old joke where I can't remember. Uh, I think I first read it in the comic The Watchmen, but somebody comes in to see a psychiatrist and says they're depressed and have no sense of meaning in life. And the psychiatrist, says, oh well, you should go down to Broadway and buy a ticket and see this the show of so and so because it'll cheer you right up. And he's like, but don't you understand? Like that's me. Like that's my show. <laughs> Sometimes comedians can be. Very grim. But before we get too deep into the weeds with Frank Oz, let's first pause and just talk about you and what you've been up to because obviously Australian cinema has an incredibly rich heritage, which I mostly know through the documentary Not Quite Hollywood, which I think is one of the best documentaries about film history ever made because it's mostly about Aussie exploitation films. But obviously Australia is a massive part of the film community internationally. So how do you run your show? What's the focus of your show? Just tell people a little bit about what you do with the Retro Cinema Podcast. Okay. Well, look, I, I love that documentary as well. There was a couple of those documentaries like that, and that's a particularly great one. I love the fact that Quentin Tarantino is so into uh, the B-grade Australian films. Uh, I, you know, he, he mentioned, uh, I think it was Peter Weir's first movie was The Cars That Ate Paris. I don't know whether you've seen that one That's or fantastic. not. fantastic, yeah. One of the, the cars yeah. with all the spikes. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Great, great film. And and there's been some iconic one, one of my – another one of my favourite, obviously, I'm a big fan of Peter Weir. Uh, I love Picnic at Hanging Rock. Hell yeah. I think it's a very hauntingly beautiful film. We've come out with some wonderful comedies as well. well I love but... how they're describing the documentary as a movie about girls disappearing into rocks. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> But it's a very mysterious, beautiful movie. <laughs> it is. Joe Miranda, she's a Botticelli angel. Um, <laughs> but we, we, we've basically at the Retro Cinema, uh, myself and Angry Man decided that we were teenagers in the 80s, so it's a very iconic time in your life when you've grown up with movies. My parents were massive movie people, and my mum's still with me. She's a massive movie fan. You know, I was watching you know, Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve when I was a young girl because that's what my parents would go and see, um, my parents would watch. So uh, myself and my brother are big movie fans. Angry Man's a movie fan too. And we basically were chatting on Twitter and throwing Highlander quotes at each other constantly. Hi, you know, I'm or Candy. He- of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. Happy Halloween, ladies. Um <laughs> So we, <laughs> we we were doing all that sort of thing and, and we thought, well, wh- why don't we talk about this in a podcast? So we our basis for the Retro Cinema Podcast is 80s movies we loved back then and we still love now. And trust me, James, there are plenty that I used to love and you rewatch them and you go, ah. Can you think of any gl- really glaring examples where the, the the soul of your child remembered a movie very fondly, but then you revisited it and you're like, "Ooh, this one's kind of aged into vinegar." Yeah, uh, it's you, there's going to be a lot of booze, and I and I'm not saying that I hate it by any means. It's an enjoyable movie, but love, love, love as I did as a child. It would have to be E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Interesting. Uh, gotcha. Mm, well, there, I mean, mm. you, you are free to bash. Anybody's childhood that you wish on the show, I will not stand in your way. I saw E.T., I guess when I was six, with my grandmother. And I would say I really like E.T., but when I'm going to talk about my favorite Spielberg flicks, it's always going to be Jaws, Close Encounters, and Raiders. Just like that trio is kind of impossible for anyone to top, in my opinion, or at least 
tough yeah. impossible for Spielberg to top. So if you want to bash E.T., I, I, I've got I've got no beef with that. <laughs> Look, I, I'm not I'm not bashing it by any means. Uh, just using it as an example of a movie that I absolutely adored. I had the doll and everything as a as a young girl in the 80s and just rewatching it now i'm like yeah it's enjoyable but you you start to i think my biggest crime is how did like it's quite a big alien how did he get it in the basket on the bike that's a, it's, a, a it's, very fair pra, pra, practical pragmatic point <laughs> and it's a silly point i know but but when it comes to situations like that like uh when we got around to doing crawl that's another one that i had more fond memories of that rewatching it the effects are really bad, and it cost a fortune, that movie, at the time, like a lot more than The Thing or Blade Runner or any of those movies which have held up very well. Krull has not held up very well. So I couldn't, in all good faith, podcast that with Angry Man. So he then got a guest on. So if that situation comes up, like with Fatal Attraction, Angry Man doesn't like Fatal Attraction. So I got Carrie from Girls Be a Sport on to host that with me. So that was the first movie I ever snuck into. A buddy of mine and I, I think we were eleven or so when it came out, and you know it's R-rated. We couldn't get in on our own, so we bought tickets to something else like Drop Dead Fred or something totally harmless, and snuck yeah. into it. And it was a weird theater where they had this thing called the Cinnabar Lounge, where the theater had tables and sofas, and they're almost like beds. And I'll never forget this kind of chubby couple was really getting it on, like right behind us. So we're getting quite the education oh. watching Fatal Attraction and the couple and yeah i felt very very grown up <laughs> well as you and i were talking just a little bit earlier about fritz the cat uh, some sometimes a bit of an early education is not such a bad thing and, it's, and, and it's, especially now kids can access anything like back back when we were kids you had to work for it you you had to find you know your parents playboys in the attic and discover where they'd hidden them you know it, it was a challenge to, to look at naughty things or, or to their find secret naughty stash things. of unmarked VHS cassettes. Like, hmm, yes. what might be on these? Yeah, I'm a big fan of working for it, but it seems like now, like kids are more sheltered than ever. Or maybe I'm totally naive. Maybe there's a small section of them where once they have their own computers, they and they know how to like you know wash their history. They're diving into all sorts of forbidden pleasures. But yeah, I'm a big believer in. If a kid feels like they're ready for something, they're great at self-censoring where if they're having a horrible experience or it's upsetting them, they will probably change the channel or look for something else. They don't need adults looking over their shoulders dictating whatever you know visual sins and pleasures they wish to indulge in. Yeah, exactly. And, and you touched on it then, and I think they've got access to everything, and yet I think they're probably a little bit more naive. In a, in a way, I, do, I don't know. It's a strange circumstance where you think that, you know, on their phones they could just type in, you know, threesome or something and watch three people go at it. But uh, they also seem quite sheltered as well. So it's a it's an unusual situation. But I certainly think that, you know, again, you know, growing up as a teenager in the 80s was just I, I don't I don't regret anything. <laughs> I regret nothing. Absolutely. Uh, it was a great time. To, a steady to be, diet of ACDC and strong mid-strength Australian beers. As a, as a, a strong upbringing for anybody. Yeah, absolutely. We always joke about it on our podcast. You know, Aussies start drinking at five. So uh, take that, France. 
you know. <laughs> Excellent. Now, speaking of Australia, have you had a chance to talk online with Paul Murphy, the other Aussie who's been on the podcast a few times? He's an editor who lives here in New York with his wife and child, but he was in Australia last year working on a documentary, but he's the only other Australian film person that I know in our circle of friends on Twitter. Wow. No, I haven't. I'll make sure to connect the two of y'all. Yeah, Paul Murphy's an awesome guy. He came on and did our episode about Danny Elfman. He did one about porn parodies, which I really enjoyed, and he did one about the satanic panic. So he's always down to tackle really interesting topics. Well, I'm I'm a very strange female, so you know if you don't want to do porn parodies part two, nice. Uh, I'm I'm particularly up to scale with seventies and eighties. What's the Mount Everest of porn parodies in your mind? Oh, oh, you've got got me wrecking my brain now. Uh, it's not not really a parody, but I I, I do like Misty Beethoven. Um, uh, Debbie Does Dallas, of course. It's awesome. Deep, th- Deep Throat's okay. Uh, there's a, there's a, I think it's a German one called the Sensational Miss Janine or something like that. It's, a, it's dubbed over, but that's a particularly kinky one. Um, <clears throat> you, all your, all your male listeners are just going. Oh my well, I think at this point, anybody who's stuck with Ron Real for a long time is very used to my saying wildly inappropriate things we're like yeah you're you're oversharing we don't need to know all these things about you blah 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 <laughs> so, you're a, you're you're in a you're in a good place for this kind of conversation awesome i'm the queen of oversharing don't worry about it so well i guess the irony is that we're gonna be talking about relatively innocent material at least to start <laughs> with, with yeah. today's podcast muppets absolutely <laughs> well let's switch gears to some muppets but Put a pin in the porn parodies, et cetera, because I love filth. I love smut. We'll definitely do a uh, – we'll have to rack our brains about a fitting uh, part two topic when you return to Wrong Reel down the road. But right now, let's wash our minds of all the filth and all the sin and talk about the <laughs> early days of Frank Oz. How did you first become aware of Frank Oz as an individual? Because I was seeing him in movies and hearing his voice and seeing his work long before I began to make the connection – between this weird dude that I was seeing in John Landis movies and the voice I was hearing in the Muppets and Sesame Street and Star Wars movies and the director of these wildly entertaining movies. It took, I think I was probably maybe 20 or so before I finally connected all the dots, even though I'd been consuming his content for like 15 years at that point. Well, that's the thing. You know, I, a lot of us grew up with Sesame Street. We grew up with the Muppet, the Muppet show. And you don't, for some reason I knew Jim Henson. I just didn't know the other puppeteers and it was actually after my parents bought me a book which I still have to this day and I'm just looking over to see it's called of Muppets and Men and it was only after they bought me that book that I became aware of what all the puppeteers looked like and they fascinated me and I'll admit now I'm a massive I would have loved to have been a puppeteer I've actually got a puppet so that's that's, you know, I'm into porn and puppets. Um, so <laughs> Time to start a retro cinema porn puppet YouTube channel where you can explore all your lured fantasies. <laughs> Either that or just rewatch Meet the Feebles. So. <laughs> oh, hell yeah, I love Meet the Feebles. That's fantastic. It's a wild movie. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, but that, that was when I started to uh, recognize, I was like, oh, so that's the guy that's hands up Miss Piggy or hands up Fozzie or... Yeah, you know, Sam the Eagle, you know, and all the other puppeteers as well, and it and it imprinted in my mind as well. So then, when I saw something like the Blues Brothers, and you're like, oh, that face is familiar. Yeah. That you know, and and then, then of course you know the minute uh, easy access like the internet came around and you could start looking up people, 
looking up information and things like that. And I just got into it more and more. And as you know, do, with doing uh, the retro cinema podcast, we do a lot of research. You you said uh, before we started recording, you, you're guilty of doing too many notes. Same, same. I go I go down that rabbit hole for that podcast, and you know you can never have too much information. So uh, we've you know during doing the, the the podcast and and we've done the Blues Brothers, uh, we've done Little Shop of Horrors, uh, we've done Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, uh, and and we've also done uh, the Great Muppet Caper. Yes. Um, so we, I've already done so much research on Frank Oz. So it, for doing this, it was just such a pleasure. It, and it's always interesting reading about someone's life how did they get to that point how did you get yeah, no, from he was born in the uk and he had an interesting upbringing in that uh i was reading about this how he was an apprentice puppeteer at a place called children's fairyland as a teenager with the vagabond puppets which was a production of the oakland recreation department and uh a person named letty connell or connell was his mentor but another which i'm a giant orson welles freak and i love this when i came up on this apparently when he saw touch of evil he said, uh, oh, yes. "Yeah, he said, I think it opened up my view of film that there's so much more that could be done. Actually, by breaking so many rules, he allowed other people to say, hey, maybe I can think of some stuff too. He just opened up the possibilities more for me. That's what he did. So anybody who's taken their inspiration from Orson Welles, I, I, I am team Frank Oz all the way. <laughs> well, that's – and and again, referring back to John Cleese, uh, I did a Faulty Towers uh, podcast with Brian from Launching the Pilot uh, – a couple of weeks ago, and uh, did the same thing with John Cleese, and he was the same with Monty Python. And as I said, I was listening to your your Monty Python one with Stephen Saunders from the Film Connection last night, and it's very interesting. And it was the same thing with Frank Oz, even though uh, he was with the Muppets for an incredibly long time. I mean, I think he did an apprenticeship with them after coming out of the the Fairyland Vagabond Puppets. Uh, he went over and he, he met Jim and Jim said, look, come on over to New York. It was only about four. And, and I think it worked out well because I think Jim's wife was pregnant so she couldn't do a lot of the puppets. So it worked out well that Frank came over and he was only meant to be on a six-month trial. And, of course, he, as he said, I ended up being there for 35 years. <laughs> um, but he also felt um, not not trapped by the Muppets. As he said, he loved but he was never actually into puppets, and he admitted that in his interview. He said, I was never really a big puppet person. He said, I was, what I was more into was the creativity of it, and Jim was doing something with puppets that no one else was doing before. You know, they'd have, you know, a, a marionette or a puppet king or a queen, and suddenly Jim was making these softer puppets that you could change the eyes and the nose and all that sort of thing, and and he said he was more a fan of the creativity of it than the actual puppeteering, which I found very interesting. And also making a lot of his puppet content for an adult sensibility. I think a lot of times people now, probably because of cartoons like Muppet Babies or some of the subsequent versions of the Muppets since the death of Jim Henson, but people forget that the Muppet Show had not an edgy sensibility, but it clearly was going for an all-ages audience and if the kids were allowed to watch it they were they were lucky because i sent you this one of my favorite bits by far i sent you maybe like a week or so ago when frank oz as miss piggy sings a duet with chris christopherson 
and they're <laughs> she's boasting and bragging to Kermit ahead of time about how it's a really sexy number and how naughty they're gonna be. I was like, what the hell? This is not a a kids show. And then she's like, take me, Chrissy, like swinging her hair around. And Chris Christopherson's howling with laughter, but clearly. I mean, they're bringing on performers like Debbie Harry and all these extraordinary pop stars. I just love the fact that he was able, like they were just with that show, able through subtlety and subterfuge, introduce so many adult ingredients. I think fly right by a lot of people because they just think, oh, it's Kermit and Miss Piggy. It must be innocent. I just want to thank you for letting me do this opening number with Chris. Oh, well, that's all right. It's a very sexy number. I hope you won't be jealous. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, you sure? Positive. Oh. Oh, 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 oh. Chris, please. <laughs> come in, come in. You'd better introduce us. He just cannot wait. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, here uh, he is. Come, come, come I just want you to know, no matter what happens, it's you I love. Trust me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Mr. Chris Christopherson! Take the ribbon from your hair Shake it loose, let it fall Laying soft against my skin Like the shadows on the wall Come and lay down by my side Till the early morning light All I'm taking is your time Help me make it through the night. Chrissy! Care who's right or wrong! I don't try to understand. Let the devil take tomorrow. Lord, tonight I need a friend. Yesterday is dead and gone. Yesterday is dead and gone. And tomorrow's out of sight. Yes, tomorrow's out of sight. And it's sad to be alone. So sad to be alone. Help me make it through the night. We don't, we don't want to be Help me make it through the night. Yeah, I, I, I remember, you know, watching the Muppet Show when it aired on TV. Would never miss it, never miss it. And they, they just had the most... Like I would literally, I would basically say that everybody famous at the time did had an appearance on the Muppet Show. Especially you know, musicians. Late... I mean, you, you, oh, yeah. you're not a musician until you've played drums right alongside Animal and had like a drum contest or something like that. <laughs> That's it. even Prince. Prince was on the on the Muppet Show. It was the thing to do. And of course, one of my favorite female uh, comedians, uh, 
well, uh, well, comedy actresses, Madeline Kahn. Oh hell yeah! She, she, yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, Jeannie. She's wonderful and and died way too soon, but she was on the Muppet. Like everybody was. You, you could just you could just rattle off every single guest, and and there was adult, not adult content, but mature jokes. And you could even say that about some of Sesame Street as well. They certainly addressed certain issues regarding uh, race and death and, you know, all, all sorts of issues that was really new to children's television. And and it was certainly uh, Jim Henson in so many ways was groundbreaking in so many things that he did. But it was interesting, Frank Oz, saying uh, that because he was younger than Jim Henson when he was uh, – Went, went over to New York. So he looked more as Jim Henson as a father figure rather than uh, a friend. And they didn't actually become really good friends until quite a few years when they were travelling together and doing so many things together. But they had such a great chemistry with oh, Miss Piggy it's and Kermit. Or like just little things like another one of my favourite Muppet sketches is when they perform English Country Garden where you've got Ralph and uh, Fozzie Bear playing side by side <laughs> and it's just such effortless comedy, but at the same time, it's a really cool sketch about classical music and that sort of thing. And I, I, every time I revisit the, the highlights of The Muppet Show, I'm just in awe of what, it, of what Jim Henson and Frank Oz were able to achieve together. That's it. And I always appreciate it as well. And you didn't necessarily, when you were watching it at the time, they really, I, I don't think, I'd love, I don't know who's airing it, whether Disney Channel can air it or something like that, but I haven't seen in a full episode of The Muppet Show for such a long time. I'm sure Disney Plus is scared to death of it. I mean, Disney Plus is already like censoring PG movies like Splash. I mean, I've got some very low opinions of uh, online censorship these days, and it just blows my mind when people go back and try to whitewash our cultural history. It's like either watch it or don't watch it, but leave it alone. And especially I couldn't agree more. Yeah, such, especially something as nuanced as these characters. Like I love how with Miss Piggy, when you think of like kids shows, you always think of pretty two-dimensional or if not one-dimensional characters. But with Miss Piggy, I, love, I read this quote where he said, uh, they said they basically envisioned her as a truck driver wanting to be a woman. And I love how she'll like oscillate between speaking in French versus like beating the shit out of people who upset her. <laughs> and like, <"Hi-ya!"> <laughs> she's just such a, a fully realized character, and I, I think she's just delightful. Well, so I thought it was interesting that uh, at the time when they, when it was all sort of studying, it was Fozzie Bear that was uh, meant to be the main character. Gotcha. Uh, and Miss Piggy was sort of the se- secondary background character, but uh, like like uh, Frank Oz was Miss Piggy as well, but he even shared Miss Piggy's character with one of the other puppeteers, Richard Hunt. And uh, once the writers, of course, realised that Piggy was a more rounded character that they could they could have some more fun with her. Uh, that's when Oz basically performed a full time, and she became the big star that she is. Yeah, I mean, she, 2020, uh, she's still a star. Even people who have never seen any content featuring the Muppets, they're going to know who Miss Piggy is. I mean, she's like a like a superhero. <laughs> she's, she's the Madonna of Muppets. A hundred percent, without a doubt. And. What's incredible is that they were never content to rest on their laurels. They were always reaching, always looking to what was next, always trying to do something more groundbreaking. And while they would keep like their breadwinner, like Sesame Street, going, they would start to dabble and experiment with these giant, ambitious, long-term projects that really completely changed what people expect from movies featuring Mary Nuts, puppets, etc., 
which leads to all these astonishing experiments like dark crystal and labyrinth. And I guess I just took them for granted as a kid that everybody's always been doing this. But ever since the death of Jim Henson, it seems like people have been very reluctant to explore that frontier with the same ambition and aggression that, uh, that Frank Oz and Jim Henson were prone to do. Well, you know, you mentioned The Dark Crystal. I mean, that was uh, directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, but that that was basically uh, – that was groundbreaking in, first of all, the animatronics that they used in that movie, and it was all puppets. Apart from those shots where, you know, Jen and Kira are running off and they, and they used uh, little people to, um, you know, get the, the, the actual human or you know, gelfling movements, um, it was it – was, the entire film was puppets. Like I can't even imagine uh, how hard that would have been to pull together. But it's such – The Dark Crystal is such a beautiful film. We have podcasted that really early on because I was such a fan of it, seen it so many times. Um, the, you know, you've got Brian Froud who also went on to work on Labyrinth as well. Uh, and, 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 and mature things like, like wonderful – a score the score for dark crystal is absolutely beautiful done by trevor yeah. jones yeah it's just yeah. an awe-inspiring score the moment the movie begins and you start hearing the, the the familiar notes of the score if it doesn't take you right back to where you were whenever you first saw it then something's wrong but i was one of those kids that was fascinated by dark crystal but and much according to jim henson's design i was also kind of terrified of it and that was something he very deliberately went out of his way to do he felt like Children like the idea of being scared, and he's 100% right. Yep. He said it was a healthy emotion for them to deal with. And I see so many situations now. I mean, I'm 43, so I've got plenty of uh, friends with kids. I don't have any kids myself, but also all my siblings, they have kids. And I see everybody wrestling with what's appropriate for kids to watch, what's going to upset them, what's going to stimulate them. And it seems like it's always the parents tapping the brakes, not the kids. And I just don't quite get that. It's almost like, what are you afraid like what? What emotions that they might experience? Are you afraid they're gonna? I think it almost is motivated by selfish reasons where they worry that oh my god, if they wake up at three in the morning crying, then I'm gonna have to deal with it. So they just don't get to watch anything that might scare them. But I love the fact that Jim Henson recognized that, like with the original Brothers Grimm's fairy tales, it's a very healthy, natural emotion for kids to fear fear and anxiety in the context of a dark fantasy setting. So I applaud him for making that leap. That's it, and it's not like I'm the same. I don't have kids either, but it's. He, he did have children, uh, Frank, Frank Oz, uh, kids as well, eventually. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is you're saying that I think the, the Pixar movie Inside Out actually sums up that exact topic, that, you know, you can keep the, the, the little girl is kept happy, 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 to, but uh, sadness is not allowed to creep in in that film. And then by the end of the film, the lesson is, it's good for her to feel various emotions. It's good for her to feel sadness or fear or and and fear's a good thing as well for just living in society. 
and I'm not talking walk around frightened of everything, but but it gives you emotional <laughs> scar tissue. It helps you be a survivor. Yeah, well, that's that's it, and and uh, it's 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 good to be aware, and and that and that's where fear comes into it, and it's it's being aware of your surroundings. You should be frightened to walk out onto a, a busy freeway, you know, with trucks, or be afraid <laughs> of a a skexy who keeps going. Mm, saying strange mm. things to you that used to really get to me the scene that really upset me the most by far that like shattered me emotionally was the trial by stone the emperor is dead which one of us will be the new emperor oh yes my lord chamberlain time to choose an emperor yes, it should be me yes lord him, I must rule. You, you should be the emperor. There's going to be a fight. It's time to make my move. It's me. Chamberlain, no! Wait, stop! You can't! Get back, spithead! Huh? Chamberlain! Lay down my chapter! Huh? I challenge! Hmm? Hmm. Trial by stone. Trial by stone! Trial by stone! Slaves, read the stone! Get out there! thrilling and exciting as it was and like, like it, watching these two Skeksis competing in the trial by stone what happens to the Chamberlain when they rip off all of his clothes and all the trappings oh. of office and he's screaming yeah. in horror I could and he's all be- thin. He's all thin. They they look they look really chunky and big. But once he's had all his uh, robes torn off, gone. and he's just this skeletal. And and what a beautiful creation as well for that end and for the mystics as well. And and the relation they have with with the two of them. So if a Skeksis die, a mystic dies, or a mystic dies, a Skeksis die. And and that wonderful. And of course we had uh, Frank Oz initially was the voice of Augra. Who's yeah, the, uh, basically like the almost like a science a scientist slash like wizard version of Miss Piggy in a lot of ways. But I guess before <laughs> we get too deep into the woods and Dark Crystal, just in case anybody out there has not seen it yet, because you know it's a thirty eight year old movie at this point. Just real quick, what is the story of the Dark Crystal? Just so people know what we're talking about. Uh, well, basically, it's a mystical land. So straight away, you're in a mystical land, and the the main character is uh, Jen. And he's a, they're gilflings. So they're these cute little creatures. Uh, we've got Kira, she's a gilfling as well. So you've got all the various characters. The Skeksis are basically the baddies. Uh, we've got the mystics who are very sort of holy men, I would say. They're based on maybe monks or something like that. Uh, and oh. they're in a... Oh. <laughs> nice, James, nice.
James is going to do the background noise while Absolutely. I Absolutely, he'll do all the songs yeah. and flutes yeah. and things like that. <laughs> and you can do Kira's little pet. Oh, yeah, I love that little guy. <laughs> um, and... Uh, it's a, oh, it's, it's a strange movie to to explain, but they, they the Skeksis live off a life force by their little servants. That's another scene that's really – when their life the force is being drained. Yeah, the, the little potato yeah. people that they drain dry. I mean, it is a, a fucked up movie that maybe maybe a child is so innocent they don't even fully appreciate just how dark the Dark Crystal really is. Well, the warning's in the title, first of all. Yeah, so. <laughs> absolutely. But I mean, that's that's the main basis of it. There is a there is a, a crystal, and that's how the Skeksis get their also get their um, a force, I suppose, from this. But it's missing a shard, and uh, in order for the land to be restored, uh, Jen has got to restore the shard in the the crystal. But it's a visually beautiful movie, as I said. Score by Trevor Jones. I mean, Trevor Jones did Excalibur, Mississippi Burning, In the Name of the Father, Angel Heart, Sea of Love. So, you know, he's not a child musician, <laughs> you know. They, they brought in the big heat for this. And, and, and again, you know, we mentioned As well Labyrinth for the uh, well. photography department, they brought in uh, the guy who shot The Man Who Would Be King. It was his, uh, Oswald Morris. It was the last movie that he ever shot. Wow. Yeah. I... I I mean, the movie yeah, is gorgeous for a lot of reasons because you have this world where they had to construct every single atom that you see on the screen. It's not like they could just like go to a location and shoot this. Anything you see on the screen, it was handcrafted. And I love how you have this lush environment that where everything's alive, where you have this strange mix of plant life and animals. Where you're like, is that a rock or is that a monster or what is that? And the answer is <laughs> it's kind of all the above where everything yeah. could eat you or touch you or be slimy or whatever. And the Gelflings, are, they have a harmonious relationship with nature. But it's incredible just if you just pause and just take in the background, everything's always moving with a life of its own. And just the attention to detail is just awe-inspiring. And I saw this great document on YouTube where they were talking or they went um, kind of on a little adventure with Brian Froud before he started doing the concept designs for the film. And he went on a long walk with them near his home, and Jim Henson said he wanted everything in the film to be organic, like the environment in which Brian Froud lives, and they were wildly successful on that front. That's it. You've, you know, you've, you've got scenes where they sit, where it's just a talking scene, but it's so important for a children's movie, and it's not just a children's movie. I think even if an adult hasn't seen this film, watch it. It's Just because it's got puppets in it doesn't mean that it's a little kitty film uh but as you say you know they sit down and all of a sudden there's something that just goes eh, and just sort of scuttles off and, or you're sitting and, in like and, three inches of water and as it turns out you're on the head of some giant monster with like two babies beside it who's like you know a gentle monster <laughs> but still a huge monster yeah. I mean, everything <laughs> is just so lush and everything moves and moves and everything breathes and everything eats it's, it's it's incredible that's it there's never a boring scene in this film it's it's yeah. fascinating and and, it's a little, and i would say if it was gonna be totally like ruthless and critical i would argue that perhaps it's a little bit on the slow side, but I think it's just because they fell so intensely in love with this world that they created, they really wanted us to be able to savor it and take it all in and really experience it and get immersed in it. Yeah, I, I, I agree, and that's probably why uh, the next in 1986 when they went on to do Labyrinth, uh, that that is a more that's a, that's a great film for young girls, I think, especially not young young girls, but but like teen girls yeah. and yeah, yeah because. Uh, Jennifer Connelly's character of Sarah at the beginning is quite 
a moody teen. She's that, oh, she doesn't want to look after her baby brother and it's all too hard and she's very selfish and, you know, she, she wishes her baby brother away. And then she goes on this wonderful adventure and, of course, we've got the late, great David Bowie as Hell the yeah. <laughs> goblin king. Uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was never into David Bowie growing up. Um, necessarily, I knew of his songs, but I was never I in, got until into I saw... in my twenties, like my mid twenties. Suddenly, something clicked. And I was living in Los Angeles, and I got really into songs like "Ashes to Ashes" and things like that. But as a kid, I was just aware of him, mostly because of Labyrinth. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I remember "Ashes to Ashes" because that was huge here in Australia on the music channels, so they just played it constantly. And the duet he did with um, Mick Jagger as well—that was very big. Uh, and but yeah, when, when I saw him in Labyrinth, and he's it, he was a good actor. Uh, everything he was in, I really really enjoy the movie The Hunger with Catherine Deneuve. Oh, hell yeah, very good. I'm a massive fan. Of, I made it a part of my top ten erotic horror movie list. Ooh, have you done a podcast on those? I did a written post and I did a YouTube video. So the YouTube video posted maybe three or four weeks ago. And the reason I did the video is because it's the most popular written post I've ever done. It's got li- quite literally hundreds of thousands of clicks. And I was like, fuck. I was like, if that was a video, I would make <laughs> like thousands of dollars. So I, I recently converted it into a video and I'm slowly watching the, uh, the clicks go up. And I'm, I'm hoping it enjoys even like a fraction of the success on YouTube that it has as a written post. But I will. I'll definitely send it your way when we are done recording. Oh, please do because I like. I love a good erotic, and I'm not talking. You know, earlier we were talking about porn, but I'm talking um, the the artist seduction. We've gone right off Frank Oz here. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, um, all the, roads the artist... lead back to sex. <laughs> exactly, the, the artist seduction, like in um, Body Heat. Or damn good movie. Uh, I really like a, a film called Bitter Moon. Oh hell yeah! No, when I first started dating a girl about a year ago, one of the first movies I made her watch with me, I, we watched uh, The Piano Teacher, Dead Ringers, and then Bitter Moon. I was like, all right, well if she can handle these three, then the relationship's got potential. And she really got into Bitter Moon, but Bitter Moon's yeah, I think it's one of Roman Polanski's best. Oh, I I totally agree. I think it's fantastic. Isn't that so funny? Because when I first dated dating the Colonel, the very first date that we went on, and he came back to my place. And I did exactly the same thing. I trialed him on three movies. And one was uh, a Monty Python movie. One was uh, The Man with Two Brains. And I can't remember what the third movie was. And I thought, if he doesn't laugh in these movies, we're not going on a second date. <laughs> I mean, it's like I would never say, like, give someone an ultimatum. Like, oh, if you don't like this, then there's no future. But I know with, like, Tarantino, his movie like that was Rio Bravo. Because there are – I mean, if you're a cinephile, a lot of these movies become more important to you than – you know, your own relations or friends and sometimes it becomes a part of your soul and kind of like one of the foundational building blocks of who you are. And if somebody can at a minimum, at a minimum, at least appreciate it, then perhaps they'll struggle to understand where you're coming from. So non-cinephiles find those kinds of, um, I guess, that kind of criteria to be totally absurd. But if you're Weird. a film lover, you kind of it's like having a favorite song or a favorite book or a favorite building or a favorite restaurant just these are the things that make us who we are absolutely and look the thing is it was more a test on his sense of humor gotcha. than anything cuz i think that's that's more important i think you know if 
if you laugh at completely different things, I just, I, to me, sense of humor is so important. And I know there's a lot of people out there that have no sense of humor. There's uh, <laughs> certainly plenty of them around. Um, <laughs> but I, for me, that was vital. So I just wanted to see what he laughed. Oh, I showed him an episode of Faulty Towers. That was the other Oh, thing. nice. Very cool. Seen, the great thing is he'd seen all of it. Which which is which is fabulous, and there's no way in the world that he and I can lo- love all the same movies. But it gives you I've, a shorthand, I've, like when people can quote the same movies or quote the same songs, and if somebody makes a reference, and somebody that you've never even met gets it and laughs, like oh. Well, I've already got a rapport with that person because they get that obscure reference I just made. Absolutely, and it helps that we're exactly the same age as well. So we grew up watching the same things. We grew up watching Kenny Everett video show and Benny Hill and, you know, The Goodies and, you know, Tom Baker's Doctor Who. And, you know, we, we watched all those things as kids at the same age. So Yeah, but if you, uh, that, the giant discrepancies in age, one person always ends up explaining things to the other person who's kind of bored by the re- cultural references that they don't get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like I'm older than you, James, and there's no way I could date a 20-year-old. I'm sure it'd be fun in bed, but that would be about it because the other, just the conversation and the, this, there's something very nice. No, you consume and- him like a meal and then you discard the bones, but yeah, you don't, <laughs> but, yeah. but you don't Locked like. Lock back in the basement with the bucket of fish heads. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Up, up you go. <laughs> well, while we're on that um, kind of like that dark subject matter, let's get back to some of the uh, the darkness and dark crystal because one of the things I really like in this it expands the notion of what is a puppet, where some of these quote unquote puppets are just giant suits of armor that people are running around in that are so heavy they would have to be like hung on a hook in between in between takes just because of the the weight that they're having to endure. And I know with the Mystics, it was so uncomfortable being in that position. Jim Henson said he could only hold that position for a couple seconds. He was blown away by the performers. And as a performer, it's not just about walking from point A to point B. You have to imbue the character with life and personality through the gestures because you just don't necessarily have the, the facial tics to work with. And I think even with those big ass like armored lobster things, what the hell? Those uh, what the hell? Oh, they were the scariest. Yeah, the Gartham they or whatever the, they're called. Yeah, the Gartham that that, that um, uh, break into Augur's, uh, oh, I can never remember the name, and I, I love them too. The the, the big uh, astronomy thing. Yeah, whatever her little <laughs> lab is. But they, they, that, that, yeah, that's it, that thing. Angry Man knows the name of it because he's a big fan of them. But anyway. But, I'm sure that your your listeners will write in and say it's this, you idiot. Um, but yeah, when they brought the, the grand, they were the most frightening. They frightened me more than the Skeksis, actually. Yeah, because they were troopers, less... and they got a little glimmer of the dark crystal in their eyes, which I find so cool. Whether you're talking with the crystal bats yeah. or the Gartham, any servant of the Skeksis or the dark crystal, they're imbued with some of the darkness of it. And you know, as you said as well. Uh, I remember Frank in, during one of the interviews that I saw of, of him. He said the voice is only thirty percent. He said it's the performance. It's 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 how you perform. Like anybody could put their hand up a puppet and and wag their their fingers back and forth, right? Anyone could. But it's putting the character into that particular puppet because at the end of the day, it's just a bit of fabric or just a bit of plastic, and so you've got to bring life to that. And that's why good puppeteers get a lot of well, used to get a lot of work because they could go. But did you see that? You must have seen that diagram of how they had to situate themselves in the Mystics. And it looks like the most uncomfortable position in the world. So credit to those performers. And like in um, Labyrinth as well with Ludo, he also had to be in between takes hung on a hook because he was a huge creature. Yeah. You know, 
So, and 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 even back to the day, uh, I, I read that originally um, Frank Oz was going to be Big Bird, but he he was just he was actually just too busy. So of course we know it went to Carol Spinney. Uh, have you seen the, the the documentary I Am Big Bird? I have not. I, I remember when it came out, it was just a runaway sensation, a lot like the uh, Mr. Rogers documentary, but unfortunately I haven't seen it. Right, yeah. Um, the Mr. Rogers documentary, eh, but I love, probably because, again, as I said to you, I, I love puppets and I'm fascinated by them. Uh, I Am Big Bird is definitely a documentary worth checking out. Unfortunately, it's not with us anymore, but it's 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 a really charming documentary and it was just mind-blowing to see this man inside the big bird suit he's quite he was quite a tall man but he had to have the monitor on his chest and he would do he would post notes of the script this was all inside the suit yeah that's incredible like when they basically have like a little lab inside the outfit where they're watching tv <laughs> as they're performing. Yeah. yeah it's like when you watch um like the making of the uh return of the jedi and what they the, what that they all had to go through to be in in the massive suit and with all the monitors on them and everything, and and the the effort that's gone into and of course now um, I'm not going to rag on it but now it's just I guess movie makers just find it so much easier to do CGI but there's a lot to be said. Yeah, when you see Jabba the Hutt and you know it's like a couple different people that are animating or are basically allowing him to smoke or allowing his tail to thrash, it just makes him yeah. organic. He's there. They've, he's been caught in the camera. They're interacting with him on the screen. It just makes him real. And the same thing here. When the Gelflings get on Landstriders and those Landstriders start running, they're not cheating it. It's actually a person on stilts with like a cable going down to their back so they don't fall and die hauling. I mean those things – can move when they should, when you watch the behind the scenes, it's faster than any human being you've ever seen. It's just I know. Somebody running on stilts, it blows my mind just how they redefined what is an actual puppet. But for all the great action scenes and for all these great kind of leaps in imagination, the movie still finds time to slow down and be quiet and give us these beautiful little moments, like when you've got two gelflings just sitting in a boat and one's singing and one's on their pipe. And the whole movie just slows down to a crawl, but it just gives you goosebumps hearing them perform together. And, and and those landstriders, those, those guys, they were on stilts on their back legs, but they were also hanging on to stilts with their hands. Yeah. And 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 you must have watched the same making of that I did because you know watching them try to practice to run in those things. And and I'm 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 a dreadfully lazy 
person, I'd be a terrible director because I'd be like, well, that's in the too hard basket. Don't worry about it. Just yeah. <laughs> we'll, well think you, up another creature. If they tip over, they're going to the hospital and they might not be coming back. I mean, they're way high up there, but they're incredible looking. And yeah, it's just exhilarating when they hop on the back and Kira's like, oh, like they're fast. Hang on. And then phew, they just take up. And then, of course, you have that incredible <laughs> battle where they're fighting the Gartham and like one screaming as it goes over the cliff with it. And it's a heartbreaking one get like overwhelmed by superior numbers. But I think my favorite moment the whole movie is when Kira grabs him and with Jen and they jump off the cliff and she just pops out these wings. It's like, wings? I don't have wings. She's like, of course, you're a boy. But it's just this wonderful little <laughs> magical moment where something totally unexpected and totally organic happens where you see, oh, male and female gelflings are different, but this is one of the abilities she has. And her singing powers are so cool. Like He knows lore and he knows how to read and he's got certain things that he learned from all this time with the mystics. But she does incredible things like when they use the dark crystal on her and they're about to drain her dry. And she's like, come on, Lena. She starts singing all the animals go <laughs> berserk. And it just it gives me total euphoria when she just lets her powers loose. Well, that's she's she's the more in touch with nature one. And as you said, with Jen, he was he was raised by the mystics. So he was more taught uh, the knowledge of 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 the world and writing and 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 whereas she's obviously lived out in the forest a lot more, and and it's a bit it's a it's a similar storyline actually in Ridley Scott's Legend, with uh, Tom Cruise's character. You you've got um, Mia Sara as the princess, and she's been raised in the palace, but he's been out in nature, so he's got that again that you've got a very similar organic sort of feeling in that film. Well, it's as funny, well, like fantasy Legend. movies have a lot of fantasy movies and fantasy novels have so much similar DNA. And it seems like one of the big ones is always about where you've got the good guys marching toward like the bad guys headquarters. And you've always got the bad guy using all these minions trying to find the good guys. But I always want to say, look, y'all could make this movie or story a lot shorter if the bad guy would just chill and just wait for the good guys to arrive. <laughs> Cause once again, <laughs> yeah, the Skeksis, they're coming to you. Yeah. They're, so they're just... sending out all these creatures <laughs> all over the world trying to find these two gelflings, but they're coming right into your home. So just, just sit back and wait. Yeah. Netflix and chill, buddy. You know, exactly. they're fine. They're coming to you. So yeah, don't worry. Don't worry about it's it. Like Lord of the we Rings. Frodo is bringing the ring to Mordor. Like they, you don't need any wars, any battles or anything. All Sauron needs to do <laughs> is just watch his own backyard and grab him when he gets there. <laughs> it's so true, but it's, it's, it's what you always say. Or, you know, with the whole Lord of the Rings thing, you know, there, there was that funny thing on YouTube. Just hop on his eagles. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, just fly on, on his down eagles, and drop, and drop the ring, but of course then there'd be no movie. Height. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> They've yeah. got to beef these things out. And thank goodness they do. Otherwise, it'd be boring as hell. Yeah, I mean, but fantasy movies and fantasy books, man, that's one of my favorite genres. I mean, I've been reading and watching fantasy my entire life. But it's always about what happens in between when you, like, you walk into a place to find out something, to go to another place to pick up something and to deliver to another place to destroy something, whether you're talking about Krull or Lord of the Rings or whatever. But it's always about walking or riding great distances and that's just something the fantasy genre struggles to get away from at times yes well that's that's the thing there is basically two two basic storylines i suppose and you've always got to have a super baddie as well a dark you know one. you've got to have yeah the, the, the dark lord or you know i mean one of my favorites of course is tim curry as darkness in legend oh it's a brilliant uh, performance and he looks totally badass ah uh, that's it that's it it's it's brilliant makeup and a fant again fantastic performance from Tim Curry uh, as legend but um, you know you've got Queen Bath Morda in Willow 
Uh, mm-hmm. She's a good. She's a good baddie. That's another good fantasy film. Willow. I mean, I watched Howard it so many Rex. times when I was a young teen that I could play the movie in my mind because I was, you know, <laughs> I was into D and D and comics and that sort of thing. But for whatever reason, like Willow really got to me. And I don't. I haven't seen Willow probably in thirty years, so I don't know how well it's aged. But I did another video where I did my mm-hmm. my top ten eighties fantasy movies, and what I was, what I discovered is that. For every movie like Conan the Barbarian or Excalibur that I absolutely adore, you've got like a million kind of subgenres or imitations or wannabes that are kind of good, but not necessarily great, but some feel more like softcore porn, like Deathstalker 2 and things like that. So the fantasy yeah. genre was very rich in the 80s. There's just not a lot of clear-cut home runs, but Legend I saw quite a few times as a kid as well. I got, Actually, the uh, 80s is probably the best decade for fantasy on film now we're probably seeing the best decade for fantasy on TV due to things like Game of Thrones, and we got all these fantasy shows coming our way. But yeah, it's funny yeah. how like the the genre is coming back. I couldn't agree more. I I would easily say the eighties was the best for fantasy films. They just took hold in that time. I, I just rewatched Conan the Barbarian the other night, and they've remastered it, and it looks like it was filmed yesterday. They actually played that on cable, and it looks amazing. And uh, and I love we've covered pretty much all the 80s fantasy films like Willow. But you should give Willow another watch because I think in credit, first of all, Ron Howard, who's one of my favourite directors. Um, also, you've got Val Kilmer in there as well. And Val Kilmer's, we just recently, yeah, Mad Mardigan. And we just recently did Real Genius. He, at that time, was a really good comic actor. Total he heartthrob as well. Oh yeah, big time! I had such a Val Kilmer crush. It was. I watched Top Gun, and I'm like, Tom Cruise, who? Get out of the way! You're you're blocking Val Kilmer. <laughs> get, get, get your short bum out of the the screen for God's sake! I want to I want to look at Iceman. Um, but it, and and it's just again, and uh, there's a lot to be said, like for a movie like Willow, where they actually did use uh, little people. And 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 I I think that was lovely that the, actually the hero of the film is not Mad Mardigan. Yep. You know, and and it 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 just adds that authenticity. There's a lot of heart to that film. It's it's really lovely. Um, it's got a very moving and, score, and yeah, it's it's for me it's one of those great Lucasfilm special effects driven sagas from that time. And I was the perfect target audience. I was a, like a D and D obsessed fantasy freak and it came out and i just <laughs> fell into it and watched it over and over like i said i could just watch the movie in my head anytime i was bored i would just put on willow and i i, I saw it so many times <laughs> that it's it's embarrassing I'd, I'd be interested to see what you think about it watching it now yeah it'd be uh, i'm almost afraid to go back and visit it you never know i might have like an, a situation like you did with et or today like they, they showed the trailer for the new uh bill and ted movie and i was like wow i was like i haven't seen bill and ted since i was like 13 or 14 and i loved it then but is mm. it gonna is it gonna totally suck like i have no idea it's 30 years ago that i saw the thing but i will have to revisit that and destroy those childhood memories before i review bill and ted face the music in august <laughs> <laughs> I just I just watched that before I came in actually the the trailer for it I think it's going to be fun but with when we we podcasted Bill and Ted but actually I enjoyed the uh, sequel to Bill and Ted as well I actually thought that was funnier but it's it look I hadn't seen it for a long time either and I rewatched it for our podcast and. I can easily say I enjoyed it just as much rewatching it at this age than I did. But sometimes way you back. go back and you watch movies and they grow. I mean, we mentioned earlier Monty Python. When I revisited Life of Brian for the episode I did with Stephen Saunders, I was 
in awe. I mean, I was like, this is the best comedic screenplay ever written by human being. I couldn't believe how intelligent it was. So sometimes it's a good idea to go back and revisit things because they might have grown in your estimation in the interim. Well, I I think as well when you watch a lot of those movies, I remember my auntie took us to see uh, for Americans Airplane. We call it Flying High. And she took us to see that. And uh, that that was early 80s, so I was about 10 or 11. Missed a lot of jokes. You miss a lot of jokes when you're a kid. Um, but I remember she took us to lunch afterwards. and, and a hospital, it was, it what was is quite, it? It's a big building yeah. with, with patients. but <laughs> <laughs> That's not important right now. Yeah. Um, and then she took, she took us for lunch afterwards and she said to the waitress, she was really zany. She was one of those crazy aunts, didn't have kids. She was really wealthy and she was just over the top. And we're sitting there and she said to the waitress, do you mind if we take some pictures? And the waitress was like, yeah, that's fine. And so she made my brother and I start taking the pictures off the walls of the restaurant. Um, oh, and, very nice, very yeah, clever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, she was, she was kind of like that. But you, you miss a lot of jokes, and like with the Python movies as well. There's a lot of cheekiness and 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 stuff like that. And we saw the Python movies when we were young kids as well. And when you rewatch them, that's when when you're older, you really appreciate how clever the script is. How clever the jokes are, and and they were really the masters of. <laughs> we've gone from Frank Oz to Monty Python. They were really the masters of. Um, they could get away with a, a slapstick joke, but then they'd have something really witty, and and they were very good at having the variety of different types of humour. Yeah, they could blend silliness with like really riveting political and social satire. But I feel like great comedy, you should be able to as a little kid appreciate. A chunk of it, and then you should be able to. It should grow as you as you get older. Like Airplane, when I saw it as a kid, I would laugh hysterically at silly things like uh, when uh, Kitten Natividad just randomly pops into the middle of the screen, shows off her giant breast, and then pops out of frame. I was like, whoa! <laughs> but now when I watch it, when you're hearing the pilot saying things like, "Do you like movies about gladiators?" Like you know, as a little kid, I had no idea what he was talking about, but yeah, now exactly. I just shriek like a maniac when I hear him saying these things. <laughs> It's funny you mentioned that because, of course, we're always going to go back to this um, Kentucky Fried movie. The oh Catholic, hell yeah, love it! Catholic high school girls in trouble. Yeah, and and I remember seeing that as a young young person, and you know that that particular scene with the woman in the shower and Ushi, those massive Ushi bosoms, just, yeah. yeah, 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 just smooshing up against the the shower screen. Yeah, she's in a bunch and of Russell of course, Meyer movies like Super Vixens and Harry Cherry and Raquel, but she was a I think a Swedish porn star who made it over to America. And she's, I mean, built like a couple of horny 13-year-old kids, had infinite resources and can design the perfect girl from like from head to toe. And, 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 and that's who she is. But she's delightful in Kentucky Fried Movie. <laughs> oh, God, I remember watching those Ross Meyer movies. They were, yeah, he, he had a particular type. Um, yeah. And yeah. they're a little bit pregnant. He liked them even more. He loved to shoot. Like when he shot for Playboy, he liked if he could find models who are like three months pregnant because he like gave them a, a little fleshiness that they wouldn't have otherwise. So he definitely had a, a thing for statuesque women. But I think this podcast is good on history as like a podcast with an identity crisis because we're talking about <laughs> Muppets and fantasy and all these wonderful, innocent, childlike adventures. And we're also talking about Swedish 70s porn stars and that sort of thing. <laughs> Well, since we keep finding ourselves 
drawn irresistibly or compelled to discuss uh, really forbidden subject matter, let's switch gears to the truly adult movie on our list today where we have a rare thing where it's a musical that's a comedy horror film where the horror ingredients work, the comedy ingredients work, the musical ingredients work, and the puppet ingredients absolutely work. But we have a movie that I think stands alone in terms of the offering this total, complete entertainment experience. I was 10 when I saw it in the theater, loved it dearly, and I've loved it dearly ever since. I've watched it, I don't know how many times, but I'm, of course, talking about Little Shop of Horrors, a movie that I might be willing to say is my favorite musical that I have ever seen. I didn't think long and hard about that, but I'd certainly the musical I've seen the greatest number of times. But Gidget, what do you think of the great Little Shop of Horrors? I I can't fault it. I can't fault it. This this is a movie that I would go into the backyard with all my friends and we would sing the songs. Nice. Every every song. I'm a big musical fan, but I have got my rules regarding musicals. And for me, a good musical doesn't just have one good song. To me, a musical has got to have songs that can stand alone as a good song. Every song in this movie is a great song. Yeah. It's the the performances. This is perfectly directed by Frank Oz. Uh, this was his first solo directing job without Jim Henson. So obviously the Dark Crystal, he, he, although he admits Jim Henson directed the Dark Crystal, he said that he only sort of helped. But it was, it, they, they both got directing credits for that. Uh, then the Muppets Take Manhattan, I think they both directed it as well. But this was Frank Oz doing the John Cleese, breaking away from Python and doing Faulty Towers. This was him breaking out and wanting to get not get away from the Muppets but take on the new challenge of directing actual actors in camera and again i can't fault this film at all I, th I think all the performances are excellent i think it's incredibly funny i think it's fantastic in the fact that it's the only film ever that steve martin and bill murray were in together absolutely ever. and they're both really good in it i think it's my favorite steve martin performance this is embarrassing or humiliating even to admit, but I used to drive around in college with the cassette in my car singing this movie without a trace of irony or without a trace of recognition <laughs> that my singing voice might not be up to snuff compared to some of the other ones. But Steve Martin's <laughs> song at least was kind of in my range, so I would sing along with that. But, oh, my God, it makes me howl. Younger, just a bad My mama noticed funny things I did, like shooting puppies with a BB gun. I'd poison guppies when I was done. I'd find a pussy cat bashing its head. That's when my mama said, What did she say? She said, My boy, I think someday you'll find a way to make it. You'll be a dentist. You have a talent for causing things. Some be a dentist. People will pay you to be inhumane. Your temperament's wrong for the priesthood. And teaching would suit you still. Some be a dentist. You'll be a success. Oh, <laughs> 
but it's a weird thing where he's a pretty ruthless, brutal, gruesome, evil villain, but I still find myself loving and enjoying every single second that he's on screen. And I mean, everybody's great in this. John Candy, yeah. extraordinary. I mean, there's not... This is one of those movies where there's not a crap bit, there's not a crap moment, there's not a there's not, not a single sentence where you would revise it, condense it. I guess the the one big debate's going to be what ending people lean toward because I didn't even know till a couple of days ago that the ending that I've been watching and enjoying my entire life was not the original ending of either the original musical nor of the film. They only replaced it when the film didn't test well. And so it's incredible to me that a movie that is as that feels as perfect as this one, that is just so overwhelmingly entertaining and enjoyable where you just walk out of the theater tap dancing and singing that it could have such like a last-minute major revision. So that it, but it just shows that Frank Oz was not afraid to pivot when he saw a little uh, trouble sign uh, kind of uh, written on the wall for him. Well, I think – have you watched the original ending? I have Where now. Audrey 2 goes on this huge rampage and everything. Yeah, it turns and into I like a, 50, to... a 50s monster movie. He destroys yeah. the planet. I mean, I was like, oh, my God. That's it. Everyone's dead. The, the, the entire planet is just is just a goner. And and watching it again, and as I said, I've, I'm like you. This this is a perfect – Little Shop of Horrors is a perfect film, and I, and I can't fault it. I, I think that, you know, Brick Moranis as Seymour is wonderful in it. I'm glad that they brought Ellen Green across from the uh, the Broadway musical because – You can't pl- have anyone – I know they're going after Cindy Lauper. I know they're going after a lot of people. The fact Madonna. that she was the original <laughs> performer and still did so, – I mean – I, I, in a lot of ways, she kind of makes the movie. She gets this strange mix of fifties retro, and there's a strange sense of humor where she'll sing these songs with so much yearning and so much heart and emotion. But there's also humor there, humor there, where she's talking about like getting a chain link fence, and she's talking about chain link fences as they're like this, like a super nice, like lofty ideal. Where it's a strange <laughs> thing where she truly comes from the gutter. But she plays her part with so much sincerity. Her, your heart just goes out to her. And when she and Seymour are singing together, I get like tidal waves of emotion. I'm not a naturally kind of a sentimental or romantic person. Some of the most romantic moments I've ever seen on screen are between those two characters. Tell me this feeling lasts till forever. Tell me the bad times are clean washed away. Please understand that. Strange and frightening for losers like I've been. It's so hard to say. Suddenly, Seymour. Suddenly, Seymour. He purified you. you. Suddenly, Seymour. Suddenly, Seymour. And, and that's a testament again to to Rick Moranis, big Rick Moranis fan as well. 
and and I, I just I used to, to do Audrey Audrey one, um, you know. I always tried to used to impersonate, you know, and a twelve inch screen. Yeah. <laughs> and she, I do that. She does that sort of, like, you know. I'm, so, I'm sorry, sorry. And, but then when she sings, when she lets out those huge notes, you You're know, like, suddenly Simon, she yeah. just lets rip. You she's know, got a strong like, pair of lungs. Wow, and you can tell that she's a she's a Broadway singer because you should be singing those songs every night. Um, so you, you've you've got to have the lungs for it. But we, you know, as you said, we've got, and we've got John Candy and we've got Christopher Guest. He's in yeah. there for just he's, a short moment. We've got absolutely, Jim Belushi. And then, of course, yeah. you've got these singers who are named after uh, some of the bands. You have the Ronettes, the Chiffons, and the and the and the Crystals. And I love how they are basically performing the role of the Greek chorus, where they can walk in and out of scenes. And sometimes they interact with the characters. Sometimes they're just there to observe. Sometimes they're there to provide commentary. And that's such an unusual thing where you have this really classic dramatic device going back quite literally thousands of years. It's a device that Shakespeare would use. And somehow it doesn't come across as pretentious or clumsy. It's totally organic. And all three of these girls, like Tisha Campbell Martin, they can sing their asses off. The music is just bone chilling. It's wonderful. And and we should say for people that have been living under a rock, this was originally a, a, a I think it was a Roger Corman film with Jack Nicholson. Absolutely. A black and white film. Shot uh, in two days. Yeah, shot in two days, just sort of done. Uh, so this has just been. This has taken it. This has taken a story. This this is how you do a remake. You take it and you make it a f- billion times better. And and I'll use for the example as well. Uh, you know the, the the old, I think it was twenties or thirties, um, Reefer Madness, and that's another musical I love. I really love what they did with Alan Cumming and Kristen Bell. And, and and the songs are fantastic. So they've taken this crazy little black and white movie like they did with Little Shop of Horrors. It's a really nasty piece of anti-weed propaganda. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But have you seen the uh, Reefer Madness, the musical? I'm embarrassed to admit I have not seen the musical. I've seen, oh. for, for whatever reason, um, I think it was my first VHS cassette of uh, Night of the Living Dead also had the propaganda film Reefer Madness on as a weird little double feature VHS cassette that I bought for like four ninety nine, like in like a bin that was all going to be thrown <laughs> away like at a gas station. And so we watched it a couple of times as teenagers and would just laugh hysterically at how patently absurd it was. So, it, I, But I, I love it when somebody takes something like a short story like Man Who Would Be King and fleshes it out and makes a great movie. Same thing it yeah. sounds like with Reefer Madness. They took this like 45-minute kind of twisted, bad intention infomercial and turned turn it into a musical. Well, that's, 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 I, look, I can't rave about it enough and not enough, enough people have seen it because they, they take the humour of that. They take the ridiculousness of the original, you know, warning movie and they play on it. They, they make it completely tongue-in-cheek and not just that, again, as I mentioned with Little Shop of Horrors, fantastic songs really fantastic songs and the first time it was actually a friend of mine that said oh have you you know because they knew that I love really quirky musicals and they said have you seen Reef for Madness and and they they sent it to me I watched it and straight after I watched it I could remember all the songs and that's a really important thing with musicals is can you remember the songs and or does it reach people who typically hate musicals like i feel like little shop of hearts is one of those movies it's like the citizen kane of musicals for people who ordinarily despise musicals but when they watch this yep. they almost forget 
that they're watching something ordinarily that is like pure poison for them. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of those things when you when you uh, speak to people, and I remember the situation with my partner with Colonel Kickhead and with Angry Man, and both of them used to go, oh, I don't like musicals. You know, those blokes don't like musicals. And then you go, Little Shop of Horrors, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like my favourite so movie. They, they, yeah. they, forget, they forget this is a musical. They instantly yeah. go to Sound of Music, you know, or, or, or you know, any get your gun or something like or, or, or meet me in st louis but they think of like the, the things louis, that their yeah. grandparents used to make them watch yeah or cats or les mis or something like that and they forget just rocky horror you know picture show is a musical uh this or is Phantom a, of the this paradise. is a musical Fa- oh, i love Phantom of the paradise I love that movie. Have you podcasted that? I yeah, love it. Yeah, we tackled it recently. Uh, Victor Rodriguez came on to talk about movies about uh, Faustian deals with the devil. So that was one of the ones that he chose. Nice. Nice. Love it. I lo- yeah, I, I got introduced uh, to that movie by my ex, and and I was just a big fan, and yeah, absolutely love it. Um, but and, and we should say as well that the Audrey 2, this – the, the the growth of Audrey too is fabulous from this tiny little plant in a can into this yeah. into this massive like the, the Audrey too actually by the time it was full size it required up to forty puppeteers to operate and one of them was actually Brian Henson Jim Henson's son oh very of course, cool yeah and and the, the the puppet was actually created by the Jim Henson company uh, and they're pretty much the go to guys that company now is the go to if they need puppets or anything like that because they make such wonderful creations. And well, it's incredible so that you have this giant plant that sings in almost like, like like he's like an old soul or blue star from like decades prior and he's got these profanity-laden verses. Like it's the first Oscar-nominated <laughs> song where the guy's calling Seymour like a puss and like, you know, he, he just yeah. cuss, cussing him out. <laughs> but that song, Feed Me, not only is it a brilliant song, but I love how the story evolves because initially you have Rick Moranis, a.k.a. Seymour, totally horrified and surprised that this thing can even talk in the first place to being petrified that it's asking him to kill people and that some people deserve to die. But then, of course, you have that great bit where you see Steve Martin beating Audrey and suddenly Rick Moranis is so fired up and ready for blood and just so determined. And to see him and Audrey too singing face to face like in like doing this perfect harmony, it's an exhilarating sequence. What? A lot of folks deserve to die. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're just face to face, and they're just singing this aggressive song. And that's another little touch that I've got to touch on. Um, it's not funny that 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 um, you know Steve Martin's character beats beats up Audrey, but it's always so like if she's got a black eye, it's a really neat black eye. It's just this little black ring around, and when she had her arm broken, it's just in it like a, a, a 
a, a scarf. Sling. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah a, it's little, a, a, a little scarf. So everything's still feminine, even though she's been injured. Everything is still very delicate and feminine on her. And I, th- and I think that's just little touches like that are really, really, really sweet. Yeah, it's a, it's a down and dirty, rough movie about people who live in a poverty-stricken environment. I mean, that first song of uh, Skid Row, where you have this woman come out at the opening of the song, and she starts singing like she has like a voice from God. I, I looked up earlier. She's a very famous Tony-nominated singer-actress, a comedian named Bertice Reading. But the way she yep. opens up that song, it's, it's almost like it channels or vantages to crystallize every great moment on Broadway that you ever could imagine possibly seeing and she just brings it all down through just that one little lyric and then it switches over to all the other singers but it's incredible how she really establishes this tone of hopelessness and despair <laughs> that, that permeates oh, this James, I wish I could sing I wish I could sing because it's it's in my head right now there <laughs> I don't yeah. even get to try and sing. Well, I'm going to sneak it into whole... the episode, so not to worry. <laughs> you bastard. Um, so, but, then, but as you say, she opens it up, and then and then it goes to the entire street, all doing this massive chorus of downtown. Um, it, it's it's I you, look. We, we we could just gush about this for about three hours, probably. <laughs> But we should we, we should actually touch on as well um, Frank Oz's uh, work with Lucas. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll never get it out now. So certain are you. Always with you, it cannot be done. Do you nothing that I say? Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. No. No different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do, or do not. There is no try. George Lucas basically gambled his entire franchise on whether or not uh, Frank Oz could pull off this puppet in terms of the voice and the performance. The entire franchise was placed on his shoulders, and if that character hadn't worked, it would have fallen to pieces. But much to Frank Oz's credit, he totally pulled it off and just sold us all on this little guy. That's it, and it's it's, it's fascinating because originally um, he he was approached to do the puppet, but not when he did the voice. Lucas actually wasn't a fan. Of of how Frank wanted to do the the vocal interpretation of the character, so uh, Lucas went on to, to basically audition and interview other voice actors for the part of Empire Strikes Back, and you know as Frank Oz said he was completely shocked because he was actually on vacation when Lucas said look get to Hawaii uh, and let's record your vocal track for 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 the puppeteering and it's now such a famous way of talking even if you're not a star wars person yeah just saying things in reverse people know whereof you speak and it's just this wonderful (laughs) idea of somebody very small and humble and unassuming could contain and wield this enormous power and you have this incredible contrast between this quiet little guy who's kind of likes to giggle and eat treats and that sort of thing living in the woods versus the emperor who's living you know flying around in the death star and cackling and shooting lightning and i just feel like it perfectly sets up the contrast between the dark and light sides of the forest looking at those two characters yeah and and i i remember watching a debate regarding yoda's character 
in M- The Empire Strikes Back that he starts off when Luke first and R2-D2 first encounter him, he's sort of this dozy little, you know, oh, and he's like sticking his stick into everything and you just think, oh, who's this silly little character? And then he gets, once you realise that that's Yoda, he gets very serious and uh, these two guys were debating. He's like, I cannot one guy, train him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one guy was debating that <clears throat> he didn't like it. He didn't like how he started off all silly and then he, he got very serious and the other guy said, no, it was the the delusion that this can't possibly be this great Jedi master that Luke's come to train with. So it's throwing you off. Yeah, he, and also he throws off Luke. He He's testing Luke to see if he has an ounce of patience in him and Luke is impatient. He's young and impetuous and he's like, You're, we're wasting our time. And, you know, that's when yeah. like, Obi-Wan very calmly has to remind Yoda that he was very much the uh, the same way. And then, like, Yoda can even be a little scary, scary when uh, Luke's like, oh, like, I'm not afraid. He's like, you will be. <laughs> As a little kid that shook me to the core of my soul. So, yeah, I think one of my favorite moments in all of Star Wars by far is when Luke's X-Wing fighter has, has gone down to the swamp. He reaches out. He tries to pull it up. He can't do it. And then Yoda, with like as effortlessly as breathing, lifts it up. The John Williams score, it soars to this thunderous crescendo. And Luke says, oh, I can't believe it. And Yoda just says, that is why you fail. And it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's, all, it's the magic of Star Wars back when Star Wars was uh, still something I got excited about. Like I, I mean, I get excited for Mandalorian, but Star Wars now in 2020 is one of those franchises where if you were to line up all the great sh- all the movies and all the shows that they've made side by side, there's more bad than good, and that used to not be the case. When they had the original trilogy, it's like, oh, this is a, a great trilogy, and it basically yep. became a pop culture phenomenon. And it seems like the more that they make, the more that their batting average gets weaker. I was actually working – like I, I grew up like you with Star Wars. Went, went to see it in 1979 at uh, the Parramatta Cinema with my brother, my late father, and my late grandfather. My late grandfather had never seen anything like it when we came out of the cinema. He said, isn't it amazing that they can make movies in space now? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That, that's actually like the best Star Wars review I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was so sweet. And then my brother and I went just went back over and over and over again to see Star Wars. Uh, then, then to just... I couldn't agree with you more, uh, and I think probably because we're from the same era, that, 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 that pure excitement when they started showing the trailer of The Empire Strikes Back and you're like, there's another one? There's another one? And just that pure excitement. And then when you finally got into the cinema and that, that you used to get chills in your bones when that when that first big note from John Williams comes up. Like, oh, uh, hell yeah. yeah, it's on. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, God, more. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's and I was actually working at 20th Century Fox Studios in, in Moore Park in Sydney when they were filming the prequels. Um, <laughs> I actually we I got banned from the general uh, sound stages because I snuck to go and have a look. But I did, I did light Ewan McGregor's cigarette while I was standing outside having a smoke. He came over in his Obi-Wan costume. He came down to, because he wasn't allowed to smoke around the sound stages, he came down to have a smoke and I lit his cigarette. Very so I've nice. got that claim to fame. But Is he I remember as dreamy used... in the flesh as, uh, as he appears to be on the screen? 
I was swooning all over the place, honey child. Yeah, he I is was a, he is just, a beautiful, oh, beautiful man. <laughs> oh, he's a beautiful man and he's a nice man too. He stood there talking to us for a bit, but he was in his Obi-Wan. He had the, the Obi-Wan outfit and he had the uh, little – he didn't have the beard at the time, so it was the first one. Uh, he had the little rat's tail thingy uh, at the back. Yeah, just an atrocious haircut. Oh, just, just dreadful, but he was still dreamy as hell and, and really nice. But we, I remember because we worked at 20th Century Fox, we got to see – that first prequel, a couple of days before any before it was released worldwide, I remember there was myself and probably now this was like an afternoon off work, so I like I was like yeah I'm up for it because I love Star Wars and I couldn't wait to see it, and I remember the other Star Wars people that went to see it and they came out and they were raving about it and I walked out and I just felt yucky, I thought oh. Like, That's not like what someone I was... had knocked your insides out. Uh, yeah, I remember yeah. sitting on my couch and a friend of mine had gone to see it before I did. He came back and he was kind of shaking his head. I was like, oh my God, like, tell me, how was it? I can't even remember why I wasn't with him. And he says, I don't know. He's like, there's this guy called Jar Jar in it. And he started trying to explain, but it's almost like he was coming to terms with something he couldn't fully understand or articulate why it wasn't working. And I think, but when it comes to Frank Oz and Yoda, it makes my stomach like recoil in horror when I see a digital Yoda on the screen. The uh. puppet was so convincing and so persuasive, and it's tangible and it's real, and the light that affects the actors affects the puppet in the same way, whereas when you watch Phantom Menace, Yoda looks like he stepped out of uh, like a 2D animated movie. Like the, the CGI is so rudimentary at that point. The movie just kind of vomits him out. He doesn't even feel like a part of it. It looks like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, whereas when you watch Empire Strikes Back, you're like, yeah, you can reach out and touch him, and he's there. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, Look, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I will say that I did enjoy Solo. Yeah, um, it's funny. Like Solo lost money, but when I went to see it, I remember when it first started, like the first 30, 40 minutes, I was like, all right, all right whatever. And then like halfway through, I was like, hey, it's getting kind of cool. And by the end, I was thinking, this is actually – Getting pretty goddamn good. But then the movie just completely fell on its face. And I don't know what's going on over at Star Wars these days. It seems like you have a lot of uh, producers and a lot of executives who are all going in different directions. Some that are more valid than others, depending upon your point of view or your generation or whatever the case might be. But back in the good old days, in the late 70s, early 80s, it all came from one person. There was one person's imagination. Everybody else was in service of that imagination. I don't feel like there's one person's imagination running the show at all. I feel like there's a lot of separate little fiefdoms that are all kind of at war with each other. And I get the sense that the Jean Favreau faction working on The Mandalorian probably has relatively interaction with some of the people working on some of the movies. And it just what it needs is a Kevin Feige type persona that can guide the franchise again. Yes, I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, look, credit to, to Lucas, uh, first of all, on the whole toy thing. Yeah. <laughs> they're like yeah you can have the toys they don't, they don't earn any money you can have, and he's like alrighty then um but he was also smart enough with empire and return to hand it over to different directors yep uh and 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 i think that's that's why those three films just looking at those three films work so perfectly because lucas didn't direct all three of them and it's incredible like how much that. overlap those movies have with what we've been talking about with frank oz because with all the puppeteering going on in the world of Jim Henson with movies like The Dark Crystal, you can see similar innovations going on with the Star Wars movies. Was it the Rancor or the, that giant creature that Luke fights down in Jabba in the pit below yes, Jabba's yeah, palace? Yes, yeah, the Rancor, yep. Yeah, yep. 
like so you're getting for people who love Frank Oz and Jim Henson, I feel like there's a similar level of puppeteering at play in those that's absolutely gorgeous to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I I don't know about you, I love making of films. Oh yeah, hell yeah. Uh, I mean, it's my favorite uh, honestly I kind of prefer now watching documentaries about movies than actually watching movies because (laughs) I have some of my best movie going experiences just watching documentaries about film. Yeah. I just, the other night and I'm thinking, I don't know what to watch. I just wasn't, I didn't know my mood. You know how you've got to be in the mood to watch some things. So I just rewatched the making of James Cameron's The Abyss again. Very nice. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, cause it's, um, but uh, we should say Frank Oz, Franco's actually has directed some of my. I think obviously comedy is uh, very individual. Comedy is very individual as to what people find funny. I was actually just watching Private Benjamin. I haven't seen it since the eighties, and it's listed as like one of the funniest American films of all time and all that. And I'm watching it going, really? You know, like it's kind of funny at the beginning. And the then thing I remember just... is at the beginning when he says, I'm coming, I'm coming, and he dies from a heart attack, like right there on the floor. And, and she's having to tell his, <laughs> like, what? As he, she's at the funeral, and like, what were his last words? And she says, I'm coming. And I guess I was like nine when I saw it. So I thought that was really, really raunchy. Goofy. Yeah. Well, I, I remember enjoying it again that on that subject. I, I remember enjoying it back then, but I didn't realize how serious it it got like it gets really dark near the end but uh going back to frank oz i mean dirty rotten scoundrels to me is a perfect comedy um of course that was in 1988 he directed what about bob house theater yeah, I, I caught that one in the theater i caught a lot of these in the theater i saw in and out bowfinger the score i saw i mean i saw a ton of his movies that he directed in the theater and never i don't think until i saw bowfinger did i really make the connection oh bowfinger Frank Oz, Yoda. At that point, 1999, I was 23, and I was able to yeah. connect all the dots. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, look, I didn't. Eat, I, there was a couple I didn't. I didn't realize he directed Indian in the Cupboard, which I think is a lovely kids' film. Uh, Bowfinger again to me is a perfect movie because Steve Martin wrote that. The funny thing is, he actually had clashes. Oh, and, and another one I love is Death at a Funeral. I think that is a f- very funny, fantastic film that he directed. He actually had quite a few clashes on a lot of the movies he made, but none of the movies he made with Steve Martin. So that's an interesting bit of trivia that I, I discovered. Oh, and he didn't have any problems on Death at a Funeral either, but I think that's basically because the entire cast was British, apart from uh, Peter Dinklage and uh, the red-headed guy. Um, so, so how did he get hooked up with John Landis on so many movies? Because it seems like John Landis uses them... Basically, basically from the late 70s to the early 90s, would find a role for Frank Oz in every single movie that he directed. Uh, that, that was an interesting thing, actually. I couldn't find out how he got hooked up with John Landers. Um, but but somehow they they obviously met, they got on really well together. Uh, and, and I mean, that bit he with the, up... uh, the condoms and Blues Brothers, like one prophylactic and like one soiled. And I remember <laughs> my mom was watching it with my little brother, who's 26 years my junior, but he was probably like five or six. He, he was like, Mommy, what is that? She goes, oh, that's just trash. She didn't want to get into what a soiled condom was. But I think the first time I remember him really making an impression on me was when I was a little kid and I saw Trading Places and he has that lesson or that little lecture about pixie dust. He's like, you know what this does to kids? And the way he says it, <laughs> it's so emphatic and so dramatic. But when he uh, says one, two it's tickets fun, it's for funny because La he's, Boheme he's... Opera, or, or no, two tickets for La Boheme, he says, it's La Boheme, it's an opera. La Boheme. <laughs> yeah, a uh, great scene. He could, he could actually, it could actually be an ongoing role because he pretty much plays yeah, the, the same, same guy. 
this the same guy. And of course, he, he was also in American Wealth in London. Yep. Pretty much playing the same guy. Uh, and then he was the uh, the test giver in Spies Like Us, as well. And he was in a. I now I I looked this up, and he was in a movie, a John Landis movie called Innocent Blood. And I'm thinking Innocent Blood. Oh, it's a pretty erotic vampire film with Robert Loggia. Yeah. See, we knew it as the French uh, French vampire in America. Oh, gotcha. Interesting. Yes, I've only seen it once. I did. Early on in the podcast, uh, Kyle Reardon and I did an episode about John Landis, and that was the first time I'd seen it, but I'd seen some of the nude scenes. But it's an unusual movie where it's much more serious in tone than obviously – I mean, John Landis is the biggest director of American comedies in the 1980s, and no one else comes close. So it kind of caught me off guard, but I need to revisit it just to kind of settle my final thoughts on the film. That's And you you actually, you could do a podcast on films that have different names in different countries. As I said, Airplane – for you guys, it's flying high for us. Yeah, air, um, I guess for me, Airplane as a title works so well just because Airport was such a giant franchise, so calling it yeah. Airplane just seems to seems to work. There is only one river. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that makes me howl every single time. Yeah, I mean, when I love when she starts singing that song and everybody kind of is like smiling and looking at each other and people are leaning out into the aisle and suddenly one person just comes down from the ceiling and like, none of it yeah, makes sense. Yeah. But the fact that it doesn't have to make sense is part of the uh, the joy of watching an airplane. But yeah, that song just makes me die with laughter. That's it. see that that's I think my favorite comedies is just something that just makes me. It's a it's a real skill. I forget who who said. Um, oh, what, what did they say? Dying is easy. Comedy is hard. I think that's very fair. Comedy, it's in a really rough shape right now when it comes to movies. There's great stand up out there. There's I mean. Comedy will never go away, just kind of changes places. But doing comedy right now, everybody's very sensitive and doesn't like, doesn't, doesn't like jokes. And I feel like at a time, but really good comics have recognized that at a time where everybody's saying, don't say that, that's not funny. That's actually a unique opportunity to provoke everybody and say things that are absolutely hysterical. But if you want comedy, you have to go other places than movies. But I guess it just get, it's, it, it places the burden on this podcast and other podcasts to celebrate great comedies of the past to remind people that once upon a time, comedies did exist and there were a ton of fucking fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, and, and people can go meh, meh, meh about, you know, movies like Blazing Saddles. I'm, I'm sorry, it's still funny. It's it, the, the comedy, you've, you've got to remember it was of a, a time and, and at the end of the day, as long as something is funny, you should be able to joke about anything. We That's talked about this theory. a bit in the Monty Python episode where as long I feel like if you have the attitude of a plague on all your houses where you're going to, with equal impunity, take down everybody within your sight, then nobody can get upset or offended because you're coming after everybody and <laughs> blazing saddles <laughs> spares nobody. It's one of the things where like some of those lines you're afraid of, oh my God, can I even like quote this movie or I get like thrown off iTunes or would they even let yeah. me have my podcast? <laughs> but the whole bit about we'll take the blanks and the blanks, but we don't want the Irish. And then it's, and they all kind of like yeah. protest like, ah, oh, prairie shit. Like we'll take them all or whatever the, that scene is. But it just makes me scream. And I, I've seen Blazing Saddles. I don't know how many times, but it is one of the all-time great comedies. I've got thunder in the background. We're just about to have a storm. This should be interesting. We'll just ride this out. Uh, and and I think uh, The Hangover, the first Hangover, oh, I think yeah. is, a, a, is a great comedy. Huge fan of The Other Guys. I, I think that is a, a super, super funny film. You know, Agreed. I'm a peacock. You've got to let me fly. 
Uh, you got like that. Team America and Borat. Oh, yes. And you know, yep. they're, they're, they're here and there. But it's hard to think of great comedies and movies that have come out in the last five years. Like in the first 10 years of the 21st century, it was thriving. And now you get soft and fuzzy family-friendly comedy. Like Marvel's very famous for injecting jokes. And I, and I love the fact they inject jokes. But I want to see jokes like an Airplane or Blazing Saddles where yeah. it's really risque and really provocative and really inappropriate and that do, does do not think exist. That, do you think that movie makers are just too frightened to make those sort of movies at the moment or, or in this climate and will they we don't see feel like them again? Up with the abuse. I think they might not be frightened but they're like I've got better things to do with my time than to have to do like a six month apology tour on Twitter because people aren't in the mood to laugh at jokes but I mentioned this on the Money Python episode. I saw Dave Chappelle in concert last August or June, July, I think. It was definitely last summer. I my At one point, I had to stop and rub my face with my hands. I was laughing so hard that my face was in agony. <laughs> if, I said, if I smile or laugh anymore, I'm going to have to go to the hospital. So I had to look away and kind of just like not allow myself to in, engage because he just had me shrieking. So comedies out there, it's just changed locations. Yeah, I, th- I really think that people need that release. Again, it's people so with healthy. a sense of humour, it's so healthy. We at, at a time when things are bad, boy, do we need to laugh. And, and the great thing about, that we've got these films, you know, we've got these films that we can go back to and, and uh, going back to Little Shop of Horrors, even if it's on TV and it's three quarters of the way through, I still sit down and watch the rest of the movie it's one of those little films. lines about like uh his drill is like it's rusty dull <laughs> <laughs> like all, all yeah. that kind of stuff makes me how i mean and the, and the fact that they let bill bill murray just just go off the cuff i was they so just confused bill murray... by him i was a little kid because i didn't get what a masochist was i didn't even understand that that was a thing i thought he yeah. was like a journalist and that he was thinking about trying to steal some of like the, the tools and it, it, it totally completely flew over my head now i watch him like oh i get it. i remember my father my late father explaining it to me but you he know said, that there are people tools. that like to be smacked but you know those tools were reused in Batman a couple of years later, which is there's a weird, strange relationship here where the tools from the office are used in Batman for the plastic surgery scene for the Joker. And of course, it was yep. Jack Nicholson who plays the Joker, who was the original masochist who liked to be tortured in the very first Little Shop of Horrors from 1960. Exactly. So it all comes full circle. And that was just a, p- a piece of film history trivia that about made the top of my head shoot right off. Isn't, uh, that's another thing. Isn't I love... That's a, that's another really great thing that, that you know doing these podcasts. It makes you look so much further into these films, um, and and finding out so much trivia. And now I just do that with films that I'm watching on TV, even if it's a '90s film or a recent film. I'm like, I instantly look up the Wikipedia page, and 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 look up Wikipedia trivia and and find out trivia about that film. And you know, it's, it's you take everything on board, and it's always fascinating. Just like. That bit of trivia about the equipment used, and and, and Bill Murray when Steve Martin's character's like pulling out the things, the, the worst. Oh my god! The, oh my god! And he hits his head on the on the on the, on the dentist light, just just like and he's even putting in his own like uh, gauze or whatever into his mouth. He's just like prepping it, and and 
again, you know, as James and I say, we can't fault Little Shop of Horrors. It's a fan, and if you don't think you like musicals, I bet you like that. It's PG thirteen, so. but I almost feel like it could have gotten a rate. It's, it's a weird thing where it could have been a PG or a rated R, and I think both were equally valid because you've got sadomasochism and cursing and people being eaten and that sort of thing. It's just incredible that. David Geffen, one of the biggest media moguls in the history of the business in either music or movies, would take a chance on this musical and that he was thinking about initially having Spielberg produce it and have Scorsese direct, which would have been quite a different movie entirely. This is Uh, in the early early 80s. (laughs) And because, you know, Scorsese did dabble with musicals with like New York, New York and that sort of thing. And it was going to originally be a low budget, down and dirty movie for like six million. By the time they actually made it, I think it was Warner Brothers. It was the most expensive movie that Warner Brothers had ever made. So <laughs> they got they threw caution to the winds, but it totally paid off because everything about that movie is just a perfect home run. Yep, absolutely. And 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 I found this really interesting as well because I I looked up and there was this uh, part with Frank Oz unrealized projects, and I don't know whether you you discovered this or I, not. I did not discover it. Lay it on me. Yeah, okay. So uh, in the late 80s, Oz was actually attached to uh, do a film adaptation of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, interesting. Long before David Venture. Yeah. yeah, with Martin Short, but uh, that, that, that didn't, didn't work out. Then next, he was going to direct the 1990s film Mermaids, which I love, um, after Laos Hallstrom dropped out. But turns out Oz didn't get on with Sher whatsoever, so that was a goner. Uh, it was reported in 1992 that Oz was slated to direct a film adaptation of the musical Dreamgirls for the Geffen Film Company, uh, but uh, that that didn't happen. And the late 90s, it was reported that Oz was going to direct either Sylvester Stallone or Bruce Willis in an unmade film titled Ump for Metro Golden Mare. And uh, he turned down the offer to direct Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Wow. Holy shit. I mm. mean... That was the second one, correct? Oh, yeah, God. That was don't the don't trip yeah, me up on one, my yeah. Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, first one's Sorcerer's Stone, second one's Chamber of Secrets. But I think Christopher Columbus directed the first two, and then they got Alfonso Cuaron, and then... Cuaron. I can't remember who did the fourth, and then it's been that douchebag David Yates who's done every single one of them since then, and I don't like his movies <laughs> at all, but that's another conversation for another day. Well, I guess as a way of slowly but surely drawing things to a close... What do you got cooking in the oven? What do you got coming up in the future with your podcast? And where can people find your show? Is there anything you want to plug, promote, or direct people toward as we start winding things down? Okay. All right. Well, we have uh, just recorded. This will be out this week. I don't know when this podcast will be out, but we basically just recorded uh, the Bill Pullman uh, 80s horror film, Wes Craven movie, Serpent and the Rainbow. Hell yeah. I saw it a ton as a kid. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great film, really spooky. So we've just recorded that. Uh, with the Retro Cinema podcast, you can find us on every single listening app you can. We've also got a website, so if you just go to the Retro Cinema and also give us a follow on Twitter as well. We really want the Twitter followers and you can find out what movies we've done. As I said, we've been doing it for, for three years. We do a podcast uh, of, eight, of an 80s movie every single week. We've started doing top 10s as well. That was fun. Uh, the one that we did before The Serpent and the Rainbow was our top 10 religious characters in 80s movies. Now, how did you and Moose get hooked up? I should have asked you this before, but Moose is, uh, he was on the podcast recently, but I know that you and he are close. Are y'all just Twitter chums or what's, what's, give us the lowdown on that? 
Total Twitter chums. Uh, I, I forget how – I think Moose started listening to the retro cinema and we, then we started to get some really cool feedback. We get really good feedback from people, which is really lovely. Um, and, and that's another thing, just all these people finding us and going, I love those 80s movies and I love the fact that you guys love those 80s movies. As I said, we never do a movie that we don't like and we never rag on a movie either. I mean there's faults in movies and we'll point them out, but we only do movies we can gush about. So, so it's a very positive. You're, you're not haters. No, we're not haters and it's a very family-friendly podcast as well, so we try not to swear or anything like that, not because we're prudes, as you can tell from me talking to James. I'm far from a prude. <laughs> Well, on that note, anytime you want to come back to tackle a verboten topic that would not be appropriate in retro cinema, whether it's the stunning cinema of Tinto Brass or you know whatever, whether it's porn parodies, whatever the case might be, I, I, the, my, at, the, at the same way you have a philosophy of only tackling things you love, I have a philosophy of approaching every type of cinema in the same critical light, whether it's Bergman or and, uh, Andy Sidaris or whatever the case may be, I try to tackle it all yep. with equal enthusiasm and relish. And that definitely applies to erotic cinema as well. So I am open to any and all suggestions on that front. Absolutely. Oh, that, oh, that, that would be a hoot. And I think it would be fun also having a girl talking about erotic films well, if you have as two well. guys just talking about porn, I don't know who wants to listen to that. Like, guys like to watch <laughs> porn, but I don't listen to podcasts of men discussing porn. That, like, <laughs> that doesn't have any, any it, get, it gets into that pervy area. But yeah, it's, I suppose it's a little strange. Two guys just going, oh, isn't that hot? Yeah, that was hot. No, I exactly. It's it totally ridiculous. But I would, as a just a listener of to podcast, I would totally listen to a show where I got a, a saucy Aussie talking about erotic cinema. So I, I think I think we definitely need to make that episode happen. That is a date. That is a date. Oh, no, I want to mention another one. I don't know whether you've seen it with Sherilyn Fenn, Two Moon Junction. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I've seen the highlights on MrSkin.com. Years ago, I bought a lifetime subscription to that site. And for people <laughs> who don't know, it's a 20-year-old website, and it's mostly – clips from film and television they try to avoid outright like hardcore pornography things that you would see like on Pornhub or X videos or whatever it's basically mm. any movie you've ever seen with boobs from the teens like over 100 years ago up till now you can pretty much find it at mrskin.com so Two Moon Junction I, I love Sherilyn Finn through like The Wraith and there's a werewolf oh, movie yeah. that she did called like Mer Meridian or something like that. And then of course you've also got uh, Boxing Helena, but she Boxing did a lot Helena, of yeah. yeah, she did a lot of softcore erotic <laughs> films back in the '80s and '90s. So I, I stumbled upon a, a lot of Sherilyn Fenn stuff. Oh, well, we're, you know, Angry Man especially is a massive Sherilyn Fenn fan, but she, you know, she beautiful, beautiful girl, absolutely beautiful girl Agreed. with a beautiful figure. Only a little tiny thing, but uh, she had. Beautiful breasts, and and honestly, if I looked like her, I would have been showing them off all the time too. But Tim uh, and Junction, Tim and Junction, she gets full naked. Yeah, absolutely. She does the, she does the full naked thing. Um, but uh, yeah, that's another. So I, I, I definitely, I'd love to come back and just talk about those sort of um, erotic movies of each decade. And this, that's all on TV now, isn't it? Yeah, but the same <laughs> way I did my top ten erotic horror film list on YouTube, we could come up with maybe just. The Gidget Vanaru top ten erotic moments in the history of movies. Like I mean, we could, I mean, we could get, we could shape the episode however you like. So I, I am flexible and open to any and all suggestions. That sounds awesome. We could actually title it uh, "Movies That Make Gidget Feel Funny in Her Panties." <laughs> well, I just the episode <laughs> I just recorded was with Bill Tech and Moose Matson. It was "Manly Movies That Make Men Misty." So I always. <laughs> 
<laughs> I always, lo- always love those kinds of topics. <laughs> movies that make Gidget fidget. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there, you, I, you, perfect. Movies that make Gidget fidget. I mean, that, you, uh, I need to hire you as like a, a permanent uh, contributor to, uh, to Wrong Reel. We would take over the universe. <laughs> Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, and I can't thank you enough for pitching such a cool topic. Frank Oz was a a figure that I've been wanting to tackle for a long time, but I'm even more excited for our subsequent topic, which I'm open to do anytime you say. Absolutely. Oh, look, it has been such fun. This has been an absolute hoot, and I'm pretty sure, you know, James and I are such film lovers. We we could probably talk for a couple of days just on a marathon, probably just because we could just cross subjects so quickly. Absolutely. But this has been absolutely fun, and and Frank Oz is one of my favourite '80s film directors, along with Ron Howard, uh, Brian De Palma as well. Is I, a, I, well. Then I need to send you another one of my videos. I just did a top ten Brian De Palma video as well. Yes. Yes. What was your number one? Tell me, tell me. Uh, my number one was actually Carlita's Way, which I know is kind of an outside choice, oh. but uh, that's that's what I went with. Okay, all right. It's it's hard though, isn't it? Because if you really love a director and his style, it's very hard putting them in order. We actually haven't. We've done a lot of top tens, but we actually haven't done a top ten like that. So that that, and also that might he's be got it. well over thirty movies. You really have to chop some fingers off to make those hard choices. But I think I can't remember my top five. I, I know Carrie was in the top five. I know Scarface was in the top five. What the hell is I think Phantom of the Paradise was. I, I just did it a couple weeks ago. I should remember this stuff. But anyway, as soon as I'm done with like an episode or oh, Untouchables was ranked really high as well. But as soon as I'm yeah. done with a podcast or a video, I basically flush out all the information to make room for new information. So I'll just oh, say- my God. Exactly the same. That is exactly, exactly the same. So basically I had to do my notes for recording with you after I recorded our Retro Cinema podcast because I couldn't do two at once. And then – uh, tomorrow I'm recording Retro Cinema with Carrie from Girls Beer Sport and we're doing Dr. Detroit oh, very nice. uh, because it's Angry's week off. And then on Sunday I'm back on TV, Travis's podcast, and I have never seen Chinatown. So oh, he's bringing wow. me on. I'll be watching that on Saturday night and he's bringing me in as a first watcher to Chinatown, which is amazing because I actually really like Roman Polanski films. And Rosemary's it's one Baby of the big ones. is one I mean, of my favourite. If you wanted to say it's as Best, I wouldn't necessarily agree, but I wouldn't push back either. I've got other Roman Polanski movies that I like more, but it's a towering achievement. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm really excited to watch it. I'm just going to just put myself in front of the TV. I'm going to push my partner into his study, and I'm just going to sit and not even do notes. I'm just going to just purely watch it so that I can come up with with completely fresh eyes. But as I said, Rosemary's Baby is one of my favorite horror movies of That's all time. Killer. yeah. Yeah, and, and I've got a very a very specific pattern with horror movies. I mean, I love horror films, full stop, all sorts, gory ones, you know, spooky ones, you know, like the others and stuff like that. Um, but the thing I always find, and it's like with the movie Candyman as well, it's when their partner betrays them, someone that you're meant to, like, trust that's meant to protect you and, uh, you know, Rosemary's partner decides that his career is more important willing to let his wife, the devil, have sex with his wife. You know, and that to me is a nightmare because she's got no one to turn to and even the doctor betrays her. And and it's that, who do you trust? Who do you trust? Yeah, so there's you no one to feel turn like the to. the walls are closing in around you while you're watching that. Yes. That, yeah, that's exactly it. You know, and, and all of a sudden she's got those dreadful neighbours coming in and their friend and Minnie and they're, and they're you know, taking over her and, she, and she's just lost control of her life. And I think that's one thing that always frightens me. But uh, look, that, that's probably a topic again for another podcast. 
again, thank you so much, James. I, I love well, your this podcast. This is long overdue. You've been on my radar for years. I'm thrilled that we finally got to hang out and talk. And it seems like uh, if you lived in New York or if I lived in Australia, we would be new best friends hanging out all the time watching movies. So I'm just thrilled that we're finally oh God, yes. part of the uh, part of the same tribe. Absolutely, absolutely. This is this has been a hoot. And, and how are things in New York? Are you sort of gone to ground? Are you just staying uh, inside? It's been. I mean, I've lived in New York twelve years. So, I mean, I've basically been cranking out tons of videos and podcasts and just working my way through it. It's been a, yep. a, a just a truly strange, surreal time in New York history. It seems like starting yesterday, four hundred thousand New Yorkers went back to work, so we're finally returning to something resembling normalcy. Like I finally was awakened by the sound of jackhammers and construction, which under normal circumstances would drive me crazy. But I yeah. was relieved. Was you like, were happy. Yes. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. New, New yeah. York should be noisy and busy and crowded and angry and everybody should be in school or in work and so on and so forth. So I'm just glad to see that New York seems to be bouncing back from the, the last couple of months. And so as I always say with this podcast, onwards and upwards. Absolutely. I'm so glad because I love New York. I've been six yeah, six times. There was wow. only I've always been in the winter time. Once I went in summertime, and I went never again. Never again yeah. in the middle of summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that humidity. Woof. And yeah. I'm Australian. I should be used to that. But I'm like, you know, where's the beach? Where Where is a beach? If, if it's this hot, there should be a beach nearby. But I I, I love it. And I I will say uh, there was one time I was there with my partner, and we were up at Battery Park, and it's and we go skiing. By the way, we go skiing a lot. Battery Park, middle of winter. There was no snow around, but it was the coldest I've ever felt in my entire life. Like, that well, I will never forget that. The wind comes howling up the river and would just eat you right down to your bones. And, yeah, it can get intense. We have, brutal, we have brutal summers. We have intense winters. And we have a really short spring and a really short fall that kind of break, break things up. But basically, yeah, <laughs> in the summer you wait for it to become winter again. And in the winter you wait for it to get hot again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as Billy Connolly said, there's no such thing as bad weather, only wrong clothing. So there exactly. you go. Exactly. Absolutely. Mm. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. We hope it's a nice reminder of all the incredible things that Frank Oz has achieved with his career. Definitely go back and revisit the films, both as a performer as well as a director. And definitely check out the Retro Cinema Podcast. And we hope you will maybe make some suggestions online for some of the movies that make Gidget fidget for our upcoming podcast. <laughs> And if in the short term you're looking for some more content, we've, I mentioned a couple times on the show, but I have my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, where I do film and television reviews as well as top 10 lists and that sort of thing. So you can always hunt down that, that down as well. But remember to rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, all that good stuff. But thanks again for listening. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.